This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 35 of the World Beyond War podcast. We're building up to our next annual conference, No War 2022, a virtual global anti-war gathering with the theme Resistance and Regeneration, which is going to take place in July. This will be my fifth annual World Beyond War conference. I was part of No War 2017 in Washington, D.C., No War 2018 in Toronto, No War 2019 in Limerick, Ireland, and No War 2020 and 2021 both took place in virtual space due to the global pandemic. It's a great thing for peace activists and all activists to meet and congregate and exchange ideas. And I really encourage everyone to look up hashtag No War 2022 or find it on our website and be there this July. This is a good segue to introducing a guest I'm very excited about. And I think I have to go down memory lane a little to tell you why. I'm the technology director of World Beyond War, but I wasn't always an anti-war activist. And in the past, I've been a software developer for Wall Street banks, media and entertainment conglomerates, and also for the United States federal government. I suppose I began my career with the naive belief that I could do good for the world from the insides of these types of organizations. And I bet some of my more seasoned friends in the anti-war movement who are listening to this now will agree that I must have been extremely naive to hope that I could find a path to doing good for the world while working for either Wall Street or the U.S. federal government. This is a long story I should probably tell another time. For now, let me just say that during the Obama administration, I lived in the Washington, D.C. area and worked on a bunch of website projects for the U.S. Department of Labor, the Center for Disease Control, the Postal Regulatory Commission, and even an educational branch of the CIA. These projects were a bleak reckoning for me, and by the time I left D.C. and came back to New York City, I was pretty disillusioned and very motivated to work for a grassroots progressive organization instead. But there were bright moments along with my bleak years in Washington, D.C., and some of them involved becoming a part of a really brilliant and inspiring open source software developer community, the Drupal community which isn't widely known in the outside world, but is really well known among techies as one of the most innovative open source developer communities in the world. One day I was told that a superstar Drupal expert would be parachuting into Washington DC all the way from Cologne, Germany to help save a struggling government project I was working on. This was the day I met Robert Douglas, a really talented software developer who is our guest on the podcast today. 
Washington, D.C. office buildings can be sterile and boring spaces. So let me just say I was immediately pleased when I met this software superstar and discovered a very down-to-earth person who also played French horn with classical orchestras and was creating an amazing side project called Open Goldberg that combined open source culture with classical music, featuring a new score and recording of J.S. Bach's Goldberg Variations, performed by pianist Kamiko Ishizaka, and offered to the world for free in the same way that open source software was offered to the world for free. I immediately knew I was going to like working with this guy, Robert Douglas, who had also written the very first book about Drupal and is very active with current innovative software projects and is also a photographer and the producer of new music by the singer Christina Jones. Since December, Robert has also been working as VP of Ecosystem for the Laconic Network, a new blockchain project aiming to solve the problem of serving blockchain data at internet scale while preserving decentralization and cryptographic verifiability. I think my most exciting experience with Robert was at the Drupal Annual Conference in Austin, Texas in 2014. And this is what I was thinking about when I mentioned the World Beyond War conferences I've been attending since 2017. Before I began going to anti-war conferences, I used to really enjoy going to technology conferences. At the Austin DrupalCon in 2014, I found myself on stage with a group of website developers dressed as superheroes performing a really insane skit in which we acted out the roles of software components interacting with each other in front of an audience of literally thousands. I was jumping around on stage wearing a robe and a wig, trying to look like a figure of ancient wisdom. It was the closest thing to cosplay I've ever done in my life, and Robert Douglas was one of the masterminds of this whole bizarre show. While the stage show might have appeared silly, there was a serious purpose behind it, loosening up what might have otherwise been a shy, inhibited crowd at a software conference, and letting everyone in the room know that this conference was a place to expect the unexpected. It's not easy to open up the space for communication between introverted and insular technology communities and the larger public communities, like the global anti-war movement, that might be impacted by technological innovations. And our purpose today is to explore that space. So I'm thrilled to say hello now to my guest, Robert Douglas. Hi, Robert. Hi, Mark. Thank you for that very generous introduction. And I'm so pleased to be here. Even the the mere suggestion of a world without war seems like such a dream and such a, a, a nirvana that I'm, I'm happy to participate in any way I can. Absolutely. You are still living in Cologne, Germany, right? Yes, I um, am. Before we get into the tech stuff, and I, I do want to prepare our listeners that we're going to cover a bunch of different topics, I think really at, an, at a 101 level, aiming to communicate about um, you know things that are things that activists might not often talk about. Before we do that, I do want to just take a step back and say you know your your um, your continent ha- has recently exploded in a horrible and shocking war in Ukraine. Um, we are speaking in in the month of April 2022, and I'm just wondering, Robert, what has been your experience living in Germany during this event? Thank you for asking. It's it's very empathetic for you to even ask that question of me. Um, and in fact, the experience for me has been horrifying. Uh, obviously, not being actually in the war zone, 
I, I, I'm privileged to be in safety uh, and all of the impacts are indirect and emotional, but they are quite strong. So first of all, it's, it's really important to note that my experience of the war in Ukraine has, has been filtered through having very deep uh, and personal ties to uh, literally dozens of Ukrainians, uh-huh. some of them also through the Drupal project, but uh-huh. also uh, very strongly through my personal life. And also, uh, perhaps much more significantly, the fact that uh, for the past two years, I'm a father for mm-hmm. the first time. And the experience of being close to a war zone uh, as a father is extremely intense. Uh, it's, wow. it's, it's been uh, one of the heaviest burdens uh, on me in this time since February 24th when the invasion started. So thank you for asking. Wow. Do you, now I know your, your child is very young. I, um, I've enjoyed the pictures you've shared on social media. So you're not at the point of having to explain war to your child. So I think you're talking about more about the worrying and the, just the feelings that come along with. Correct. Yeah. So what I've, what, what, what I've discovered is that parenthood is a portal into all of the fears and anxieties that a person harbors anyway. And that, uh, the, the, the parenthood unleashes an incredible shift in your own perception of who you are, uh, and makes you question everything. Mm. Um, so part of what has like accelerated that are visions and images of coming out of Ukraine of uh, parents holding their injured or, or killed children, the reports of children losing their parents, uh, all, of, all of the impacts that you hear uh, coming out of the war zone, particularly on children's and parents, they really dig deep into my heart in a way that I was unprepared for at an emotional level that I'm unprotected from and don't have filters or safeguards against. So like talking about it literally puts me at risk in uh, huh. ending, this, ending this podcast in tears. Wow. Oh my God. I hear you, Robert. I want to talk about various dramatic new technological trends that definitely have an impact on global grassroots movements. And I want to do this in a way that will be useful to people with no technical background or experience. So I want to make it clear that in some cases, we're talking about a positive impact, and in some cases, we're talking about a negative impact. Let's jump right into what I think might be possibly the most technically difficult topic here, which is blockchain. And I want to try, and I, you know, I've mentioned this to you before, Robert, our challenge here is to talk about blockchain to to um, political activists who might already have very strong opinions that um, blockchain, which is one of the technological foundations behind cryptocurrency, is an evil trend that should not be discussed at all. And th- that, is one, that is one set of our listeners here today. Um, and another might be people who are very interested in the technological possibilities of blockchain, but really turned off by the idea that blockchain is is used to, um, you know, really further individual wealth and to hoard wealth. So blockchain is an example of a technology that has both 
very positive and very negative future um, implications. And I think I've just said a lot. I'm not, I think you know much, much more about this than I do. So with that as a starting point, um, am I even on target with what I just said? And can you, do you have a way as somebody who works with, with blockchain much more closely than I do, do you have a way of explaining what blockchain is that people without a technological background are usually able to understand? Oh, I can try, but I don't <laughs> promise that I'll hit the mark. Let's let's give it a try and unpack some of the things that you talked about. So first, let's start with the very obvious uh, question. What is a blockchain? So it is a technology. It's simply a computer program. It's usually an open source computer program. And it's something that you can usually download and run on a normal computer. Uh, what it does when you run it is it joins a peer-to-peer -peer network of other people who are also running that particular program, and it learns what the network consensus is. Okay, what does that mean? So let's say that this blockchain is a database of anything, okay? Um, I'm going to use a non-crypto example on purpose so that Good. we can really get away from the idea that blockchains are only about uh, wealth. Wealth. Great. So great. one use of a blockchain could be to do a, uh, a, a, a registry. So what is a registry? Uh, in tech, it's uh, like a phone book, like you register a name and a phone number. And if you look up the name, you can get the phone number. Uh, in, in the internet, DNS, the domain name service, is a good example of such a registry. You look up the domain name, say uh, google.com, and you get an IP address of a computer that you can talk to that represents that domain name. Registries like this are super useful, but they're almost always run by some central authority, right. um, which is one of the key uh, points that I'm going to get to in, in blockchain ethos in, in, in general. So let's say your blockchain is running a registry. Let's say uh, it's running a registry of charitable organizations and their bank account numbers where you can send money. Cool. Okay. It's plausible. This is a very valid use of uh, blockchain. Um, so the first thing that this program would do when you install it on your computer is it would get the consensus from the network about what the current registry looks like. It would pull all of the data from other peers on this peer-to-peer -peer network that has no central authority. And eventually, in a short time, uh, it would agree with all of the other computers that this is the list of charitable organizations and the list of their bank accounts. Now, this is already something. Uh, let's pull that apart before we go any further. What it has done is it's joined a group of computers without any permission whatsoever. I didn't ask anybody to join this network. All I did is download an open source software prog program, and I ran it. And all of a sudden, I'm participating in a network as an equal peer with an unknown number of other peers who may or may not be ideologically aligned with me. In fact, the technology behind blockchain supposes that they're actually adversarial. And okay. so it could be that uh, all of my enemies and all my friends are also running this program. And all of our interests 
which might be conflicting with each other, need to be resolved in maintaining this registry. <clears throat> so now I've got the registry. I can use it to look up charitable organizations and uh, their bank accounts. What are the advantages of doing it this way, say, over just visiting a website? Well, one advantage is that it can't be taken away from me. It's literally my computer running my program, and it's the it, it's as valid as a canonical source of information as all of the other peers on the network. And there is no more, there is no authority that is higher than my copy of this program. Mm -hmm. There's no Facebook that can take it away from me or block me. So, and I didn't have to ask permission to join. It's a permissionless system. And it's in that way, it's censorship resistant. So uh, if one of the goals of this of the creators of this blockchain project, which is completely hypothetical at this point, uh, this 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 charitable organization blockchain, completely hypothetical, I'm making it up as I go. Sure. If one of the goals was to have a censorship resistant public record of charitable organizations in their bank accounts, then this is a great technology to achieve that because nobody can come along and, and tell me that I can't participate. Now, an interesting thing happens when somebody wants to change the database. Maybe they want to add an organization. Maybe they want to remove an organization. Maybe they want to update an organization. Mm -hmm. At that point, there has to become a new consensus. None of those things can be done unless all of the peers eventually agree. Mm -hmm. And this is a very hard task in computing and in human society to get a large number of people to agree. So there are different ways of doing this. And this is called the consensus layer of any blockchain. So usually how that works is uh, I would propose a new transaction to add a record or change a record or delete a record in our shared database. Mm -hmm. And then it would go to a number of what are called validators. Uh, and the, the, the role of the validator is to say that this transaction follows the rule and we all agree that this is the transaction that we're going to put into the database. Now, the, the, the organizational aspect of who gets to do that in my hypothetical becomes a little bit hard because then you have the like organizational challenges of who actually gets to ch make changes and what changes can you make and what changes can't you make. And that's mm -hmm. a human organizational level problem. That's not a technology level problem. I can't... Right. I can't wave blockchain at things like that and say, oh, with blockchain, you know, all the Wikipedia editing wars go away. <laughs> right. No, 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 no. It, there's just a different way of managing them technologically, although blockchain does add some level of potential automation to that and a different level of incentivization, which I can get into in a moment. So at the point when I want to propose a, a new organization in this blockchain, then of course there are the organizational rules that have to be followed, but eventually some validators, which are simply people running the program uh, who get elected to form the agreement, will agree that this is the next block on the blockchain and it gets written onto this distributed ledger as a, a block onto the blockchain. And at that point, it's a permanent record in this database. It's immutable. It can never be changed. How do I know it can never be changed? Because there's a backwards 
uh, chain of verifiability for every right. change that has ever been made all the way back to the inception of the database. And I have that complete record on my copy of this program, and you have that complete record on your copy of the program, and so does everybody else. And we can simply run a mathematical cryptographic program that can prove that no changes have been made to this record that were unintended or that are in disagreement with the consensus. So we mathematically, cryptographically know we have exactly the same uh, set of data that everybody else has, and it has been untampered with since the beginning. And that right. is just a mind-blowing technological hmm. achievement. Because, because, um, because it's non-hierarchical, right? Because it's a, it's a way of structuring information, sharing information globally that is completely peer-to-peer. Completely yes. decentralized. I mean, I think I'm. I'm guessing. You know, as we're speaking, Robert, I'm. I'm imagining some various people I know who enjoy this podcast, and some of them are like, oh, "What the hell are these guys talking about?" Um, but the reason this is important, the cultural impact that that this can have has to do with decentralization. And if you think about the meaning of the term peer to peer, basically what you're describing is like you gave the Wikipedia example, Wikipedia is is a, a hierarchical organization. There are editors who have ultimate authority, and then there's a sort of pyramid of, of privilege. Um, so it is ultimately a hierarchical organization. But as I'm understanding it, with blockchain, there could be a Wikipedia which keeps its entire chain of edits and changes all public and all exposed to to anyone who wants to see the chain of of edits of of changes such that a consensus emerges without a central hierarchy without a central um, authority is correct <laughs> you you did very well Thanks. in fact <laughs> In fact, if you link to my blog, okay. what you'll be linking to is a blog that is actually written onto a, a blockchain. It's called the Hive blockchain, and it's where I do my blogging these days and also where I post videos. And uh, it's, it's, it's very much a, a blockchain for free speech. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us where to find this blog? I can put it on the show page if you. Let's, if you want. It's yeah. better. URLs like that are way better done <laughs> yeah. as show okay. notes. So see the show notes for a link to that blog. But the interesting thing is that it's permissionless. So I joined it without anybody having to allow me to do it, and I can publish there. And there are guidelines and rules for what you can and can't do that are socially enforced by the the people who are also on the blockchain. So while it's not strictly hierarchical by nature, there are of course it's a, it's it's a group of people. So the technology doesn't change the fact that like there are people involved. You you can and, and the people have authority. And the people the eventually doesn't have, stop people from having authority. It provides it, a mechanism for them to work out. Exactly. Right. So there's a defined yes. mechanism that I can look at and understand for 
if they wanted to say remove something from the blockchain or unpublish it. So you don't ever actually remove right. something from the blockchain, but you can change the status of something, right? right. Like you can block that from being published um, on, on, on the major uh, front ends that, that do that. So there, so it's very interesting <laughs> because blockchains tried to build a technological consensus about the state of these distributed databases. But in the end, all of the consensus still ends up being social consensus. Right. And there are brilliant examples through many of the largest, biggest blockchain projects like Ethereum about the blockchain consensus agreeing on something that the social consensus then disagrees with. And they do something like a reset or a hard fork and like go back in time and say, let's start over mm. from this point and change that detail uh, that we really don't think we could live with, but they have to agree on it. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it's right. quite interesting. Right. In the case of Ethereum, there was a, a major point when they forked Ethereum uh, and, and, some of the people agreed with the fork and went with Ethereum that's called Ethereum today. And then there's a, a blockchain that still exists called Ethereum Classic, which is the people who disagreed and stayed on <laughs> stayed on the unforked version. So like everybody was more or less happy. The people who liked the one version of reality stayed on that blockchain and the, the people who liked the other version of the reality went with the new one. And that that is exciting to me right there because that reflects our political you know, state of being in this world is that people may disagree on things. And, you know, I keep coming back to the the idea of non-hierarchical, like what you just described about um, a community that breaks into two communities based on whether they agree or disagree on something, but does so peacefully, (laughs) you know, does so without a technological war. I think that is... I hope that that's an example of, you know, basically this is, this is an infrastructure and a framework for working out questions that, that can capture the complexity of peer-to-peer non-hierarchical structure. Um, so, you know, one way I like to think of this it, you know, we, we hear about, sometimes we hear the word Web3, the, the phrase Web3. So as I've understood this, the original Web, which we can call Web1, was very much peer-to-peer. As you and I both know, Robert, we both just launched our own websites. Nobody gave us permission to launch our websites. We just did it. We developed our authority. I developed authority as a blogger. I think you developed authority as a blogger. I developed authority separately as a software developer. You did as well. You know, here we are building our peer-to-peer authority through our reputations. That was web one. It's commonly said that web two was when social media giants began to um, began to dominate Facebook, Google, Gmail, you know, um, whether you use an Apple ID as your primary ID, some something is is um, becoming hierarchical that you are appealing to to give you your authority. And your authority might might be based on what your email address is or or you know the the privileges of the account you've created, but this is more of a hierarchical structure. And with blockchain, it gives us a way to 
bypass the the authorities in the in the tech world and develop again a peer to peer internet. Right. How, how's all that? How do I do that? <laughs> it, it was it was brilliant. The one the one thing that I would like to address though is that um, I don't think hierarchical is really the best. Okay. lens to look at the technology through because you could easily make a blockchain that had hierarchies mm. uh, in its governance. Uh, in, in fact, I think that's probably even common and in some cases desirable. I think really the, the key concept there is the decentralization mm. that, that not all of the authority is centralized in one entity um, especially when uh, you know that those types of situations, like take a Meta, Facebook, or a Google, or an Apple example, where that tends to put a, a corporation, oftentimes an American corporation, in the position of a global monopolist. Yes. Uh, where yes, there is great value in the software they deliver and the services they deliver. Otherwise, people wouldn't use it. But they've also then become vested with powers that are maybe completely undesirable for a, a U.S.-based corporation to possess. Absolutely. That, so yeah. the decentralization of that means that those powers can be put into other people's hands who don't necessarily become global monopolists. Mm-hmm. And then there's an, another really fascinating aspect of blockchains, which we didn't talk about on purpose at first, and that is the tokens and the tokenomics. Um, they're also called coins mm-hmm. uh, th- through like the Bitcoin nomenclature. And, and, and this is super interesting, but I'd, I'd like to use, before we transition to that topic, which I think is really important, I, I, when you and I talked about this topic, you warned me that maybe some people in your audience would have uh, an innate bias against blockchain technology uh, due to the energy used to validate chains like the Bitcoin chain. Yeah, ele- electrical energy, running <clears throat> server farms. We hear that these are these are burning up fossil fuels to generate yep. Bitcoin. So let me just say I agree with you. I mm-hmm. think that's... Uh, super wasteful. Um, the history there is that the any blockchain has uh, a consensus mechanism that guarantees that all of those peers agree with each other. And simply the very first consensus mechanism that proved itself to be robust enough to be widely deployed was something called a proof of work consensus mechanism, mm-hmm. which uh, required computers to do very hard mathematics and increasingly hard uh, level of mathematics to prove uh, that they uh, had solved the, that. Yeah, it was basically doing mathematics to uh, for mathematics sake to prove that they had done enough work to have the authority to have consensus on this blockchain. It was not right. very not a very good description of proof of work. But the, um, the end result is that the miners are essentially, the, the people who run these machines are called miners. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're essentially uh, in competition with each other to, to validate the next block in the blockchain, and they do so through very hard mathematics. Now, it is expensive, uh, and it's n- needlessly wasteful of electricity because other consensus mechanisms have been developed. 
And in general, the blockchain world is strongly moving away from that. Case in point, Ethereum, which has started off, which is the second biggest blockchain, has started off with Bitcoin's proof of work consensus mechanism and also has a lot of computers that are doing that type of mathematical work to to prove the next block. They're moving away from that this year and they're moving to something called proof of stake. And it should take a thousandth, a millionth, some tiny fraction of the amount of electricity that it used to. Most new blockchain projects never use that type of mechanism to begin with. I won't speak for Bitcoin. I don't actually use the Bitcoin blockchain. So that's point one. The, The other point is that basically all the technology that we use needs to be evaluated at some level on a cost-benefit analysis. If there's a utility to the software, then there will be a price for running it. So Mm -hmm. take a Facebook or a Twitter. Have the people seen the server farms that those (laughs) things run? Exactly. They're gargantuan. So if there's a perceived utility, then people are going to be willing to pay a price in terms of server equipment and electricity to to participate in that and have that utility. Um, if there were no utility, then people wouldn't run those server farms. So there's right. kind of uh, a, a bit of a maybe naive trust on my part in the economics that say that says if those projects were not bringing utility to somebody, then nobody would participate. Well, I think it's very important to differentiate blockchain from Bitcoin. You're you're correct that. When most of us first heard of blockchain, it's because of Bitcoin. And of course, and, it was it was yeah. the only game in town for right. five years yeah. before Ethereum came along. I, I also want to say, you know, aside from the energy question, which is a big one, the idea of Bitcoin itself, you know, many many of my fellow peace activists, including myself, are, are really not into greed and wealth. In general, you know, I don't think um, no nobody makes a lot of money being an anti-war activist. So I think there is a lot of negativity um, associated with the word Bitcoin. And I want to take this head on because um, you you said you agree. I agree as well. Blockchain is one of the underlying technologies that made Bitcoin happen, but blockchain is not Bitcoin. To me, the the summary of why this is important has to do with. Um, identity. And when we're born, like for me, I'm born in the United States of America. When I was born, I was born with a government approved identity. I had a social security number. I was able to get a passport. I'm able to vote. I get a library card. These are all, let's call this the, the identity infrastructure of government, um, whether it's local government, federal government. Um, when the internet entered all of our lives, and for me, you know, I was already an adult when I discovered the internet, so I remember this happening. Suddenly, there was a whole new identity infrastructure. Right now, my Gmail account, because my Gmail account is my primary account, um, is my central identity. If I were to be blocked by Google, um, which is more than a remote possibility because they are a, a tech giant and have have through their YouTube, you know, um, business, which they own, have done some blocking. If I were to lose my Gmail address, I would lose access to much of what I do online, which is my career and my 
life. Um, and so let's say that the internet provides us a second identity infrastructure. So the real importance to me, the, the, the positive potential of blockchain is I want an identity infrastructure that I own, that's, that is controlled by me, that is not given to me by a Silicon Valley tech giant like Google and is not given to me by the federal government. Um, a peer-to-peer -peer identity infrastructure to me offers the possibility of an, a new type of citizenship, a new type of participation in, in a world commons. Is that too much of a stretch? Not at all. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people who are working in the blockchain space precisely because they're attracted to permissionless, decentralized, yes. uncensorable identity management. So one project that really stands out in the space is called the Ethereum Name Service, ENF. Mm -hmm. And at first blush, they're like a domain name registrar. So you go there and you can register, for example, robertdouglas.eth. Okay. You register that domain and if it's available, then you pay a small fee for it and it's yours. It's, it's, it's a first come first serve market and there's an aftermarket so you can buy and sell these things after the fact and there's domain squatting like there was in the in the early days you know still and in the early days of domain name registration for web 2 but what do you have there there you have a, a permanent uh, record on uh, a very stable blockchain that your account is linked with this identity. And then you can make other linkages that are also recorded there. For example, you could link all of, you can link your Twitter identity, you can link uh, your other uh, blockchain wallet accounts with it. Uh, you can link normal domain names with that as well. Um, so nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can turn that off. You're basically, the maintainer of these records on this public blockchain asserting your identity in that respect. So the moment that I link Robert, Robert Douglas.x is I think the one that I ultimately registered and I, I linked that then to my Twitter handle, there's a permanent record that I established that I chose that uh, that blockchain entry is in fact, associated with that Twitter handle. Mm -hmm. And there was a ver verification process similar to OAuth, I think. That, uh, no, it wasn't similar. I had, to, I had to tweet something, I believe, that was then verified by the registrar to show that I had control of that Twitter account. So I couldn't just like make associations with other people's Twitter's accounts. Right. So there's a security layer. Mm -hmm. And I think this is interesting, and I think this is going to be a very emergent area uh, that... Web3 and blockchain can possibly make very positive contributions to because like you stated, identity is, is, is extremely important for people who invest in a presence in the digital networked world as you and I have done and as many activists do as well. Now, sometimes the activist wants no identity and wants to be invisible. Mm -hmm. That's a whole new discussion that yes. blockchain can also participate in. Definitely, yes. But if you want to be visible and you want identity and authority and you want provenance to be provable, 
then blockchain actually offers some really interesting possibilities that I think activists uh, might do well to study to solve particular problems, especially around disinformation um, right. and, and, and things like that. So definitely that's you're right in bringing that up. Is it a magic wand? Does it solve all the problems? Not by a long shot. Hell no. Yeah, not even close. Nothing's going to solve all our problems quickly. It, you know, by the way, I, I do think um, the inventor of blockchain himself is anonymous. Isn't that right? I believe his his identity has been um, possibly found but out. confirmed at this point. It was uh, the paper um, was released under a pseudonym, but the that pseudonym has been all but linked to right. an actual person at this point. But that was a, a stroke of genius in terms of creating an aura of superhuman uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, genius around it. Was it a person? Was it a group of people? Was it a state entity? Who was really behind it? Fascinating. Yeah. But it- Basically, we're talking about an, an invention, an innovation, which is the invention, I believe, can be characterized as using cryptography, that solving of cryptographic challenges becomes the currency. It made the ability to have this de- decentralized program that many people could run permissionlessly. And everybody's computer who was running this program would be in agreement about who had what and how much and who was sending whom what and how much at all times, even in the assumption that everybody would try to scam it to their own benefit. Right, right. So it was resistant to all of the attacks that people can think of uh, for gaming it for their own benefit. Now, that's not true. There, People ob- absolutely found a hundred ways, uh, a thousand ways to like s- game the system and mm-hmm. create you know, uh, benefits for themselves. But fundamentally, if I wanted to make a Bitcoin transfer to you, I can have a lot of assurance and confidence that it would go through very properly and exactly what I want. I I would be able to do that. And nobody could tell me that I can't. It's absolutely permissionless. Why is that relevant? Well, Ukraine, uh, people sent $100 million worth of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to the Ukrainian government to support their efforts in fighting Russia. If they had had to do that through their banks uh, or charitable organizations, not only would they have been guaranteed success in doing it? But they would have paid fees. There would have been middlemen. There would have been the risk of their charitable organization just taking the money and stealing it, which I'm sure nobody's ever heard of because that would never happen, right? But uh, with cryptocurrency, they were able to make the transfer. It shows up on the Ukrainian account within seconds. And nobody uh, had to ask permission or grant permission. It could be done globally from anybody around the world. I think that already is maybe a a sign of the type of utility that Bitcoin was actually created to provide. I do know this is a more challenging podcast episode than most, but I absolutely think that activists must embrace technological understanding we, we have to master this. We, we can't be followers. We can't be left behind. I think that blockchain, while it's seen as related to Bitcoin and it's seen as a greedy scam, et cetera, I actually think blockchain may be a paradigm shifting technology that has 
positive and negative implications far beyond the word Bitcoin. And I just want people who are listening to to you know open their minds when you hear about blockchain, when you hear about Web3, whether you like it or not, this change is happening. This change is coming our way. This Absolutely. is not something we're going to escape from. It's, it's like any technology that emerges that has utility. It will help humans human better. So I with, all the good, with all of the good and the bad and the ugly of what it means to human, that technology will accelerate and aid humans in their quest to be human. Uh, and blockchain technologies are simply one of many, many, many interesting areas of technology that are evolving super quickly. Uh, the amount of funding that is going into blockchains is is phenomenal. I don't have numbers, but we're talking trillions and trillions of uh, investment and uh, value stored uh, yeah. in, in the in these in these uh, projects. So. It's, it's quite significant, and there are a lot of um, individuals and organizations and governments betting on the long-term uh, importance of these technologies. So simply ignoring them and pretending that they don't exist is simply, you know, it's only a choice to be ignorant. It's not, right, it's right. not a, an act of protest against something that's going to be there and going to come. You can't right. really stop it. Yes. Nobody, that, no force on earth can make Bitcoin or Ethereum go away at this point. They're going to be there the rest of our lives. Right. Right. Let's put it very simply. Activists who are often jailed, who are often persecuted, who can be killed for their work around the world can be very interested in ways to protect their privacy. That's just absolutely basic to the work that activists do. I'd like to talk about the technological moment that we've been in really all of our lives, which is a time of absolutely breakneck fast change. When when you and I were both born, Robert, the world was very different than, than it is today. Um, and... I sometimes when I look at the problems of the world, the very significant problems of the world, the war, the poverty, the injustice, I sometimes wonder to what extent the pace of technological change has been the you know a main driver in you know look look at the difference between the Napoleonic Wars and World War One. Um, one of the main differences was technology, airplanes, tanks. Twenty years ago which was around the time that website projects like Drupal and WordPress were brand new, projects that, that many of us still work with today. Back then, every website either was hosted by a small or medium size or even large host, which meant the actual physical servers running those websites were in, owned by maybe a small hosting company, maybe a large hosting company. I've worked for many different website organizations. Many of them, we ran our racks in right out of our offices. You know, 20 years ago, there would be a room next to my cubicle that I'd be working in, and this would be the web servers running our servers. This also provided a type of decentralization. I think it was around 20, 2002, 20 years ago, that a company called Amazon came up with a very smart idea. 
and that was actually even more profitable than running the stores in the world. This is this is the idea that Amazon should rent out its excess server capability. They called this AWS, Amazon Web Services, and begin providing servers, web servers to other companies on a rental basis. And this was so successful, this was really the invention of cloud computing. And while cloud computing doesn't sound like a massive change from decentralized to centralized, um, the word cloud is not a scary word. What cloud computing also is, is corporate centralized computing, because only a few companies, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Oracle, IBM, but you know, really mainly Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, only these companies have the physical infrastructure to run web servers, which means many organizations, not World Beyond War, but many organizations are running their web servers on Amazon and may not even know it. And our actual, the physical infrastructure of the web, which used to be decentralized, is now very centralized. To me, this is of concern to the entire activist community. And um, we see it when people are deplatformed from social media. You know, suddenly we realize that we've allowed a few central authorities to become all powerful. I absolutely agree with your concern around that. And it's one of the primary motivations that I had as uh, somebody who built uh, sub very, you know, sequentially built uh, successful companies based on those clouds to abandon that altogether and move into the Web3 uh, blockchain arena professionally with the Laconic network that I'm working with now, uh, where we're we're really trying to build that type of infrastructure where you have compute and storage uh, and networking uh, all at a decentralized level, meaning the the network traffic and the you know, the CPUs that are processing programs and the places where files are being stored and data is being stored is not concentrated in hyperscale American corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's one of the fundamental goals of what we're doing. It's, it's, right. it's, it's there in the founding documents of what we're doing. We're trying to not recreate that. So Laconic Network um, one of the problems that blockchains have, one of the good things that blockchains do is they record data and they build consensus that that data is the data. One of the things that they can't do very well is then let that data be served off to applications and websites that want to use it at the scale that a Facebook or a LinkedIn or something like that would require. They're not built for that task. They're hard to query. They can't handle requests like a web server would in that way. Uh, so there's this very large uh, gap when you want to build a blockchain-based application, a, a decentralized app or a DAP, uh, which, mm -hmm. is the, which is the basis of what Web3 is. If you want to build one of these DAPs, there's this very big challenge of actually getting the data and working with the data that's on this blockchain. So Laconic Network is building a decentralized solution to that, where many, many people will participate in serving that data. Uh, in, in the end, anybody who can open a browser tab will be able to participate in serving that data in a, in a, in a 
brilliantly hyper decentralized way at like an enormous global scale uh, so that nobody can shut it down and nobody mm-hmm. can uh, deplatform uh, you in that case. So you really set up the problem statement with your with your description of the cloud and AWS and Google Compute and Azure, which is Microsoft's platform, being these highly centralized areas of computing power in just in the hands of just a few companies and all of them American right. companies. Uh, that's why I moved. Wow. Yeah. I'm thinking back to, to the first decade of the public internet. I'm talking about the 90s, basically, when we all discovered the internet and we were so excited by by the potential of it, from a cultural point of view, um, do you do you observe that we are still the same? We have the same openness to decentralization that we did when we first discovered the internet. Like what's you know, like you're describing what what's technologically possible, but what's culturally happening? That's what I want to know. What is happening that allowed cloud computing to become so dominant? Centralized, controlled cloud computing. Well, that's a great question, and I, I, I'm not the world's greatest scholar on this, so I'm going to shoot from the hip. Sure. But what I see is that uh, people are very drawn to utility and convenience, and a lot of people might have been drawn to the philosophical ideas of the internet being a decentralized network and permissionless. I could just spin up my web server and launch my website, and nobody had to say that I could or couldn't. Right. That's great. While that's attractive to a certain subset of people, most people were like, oh, you mean I can just like walk to my computer and look up some fact and I don't have to go to the library (laughs) and write a book or have to run into a person on the street who can randomly answer a question that I have? Because those were the only two ways that you could do information gathering prior to the internet. That's great. I'm going to do that. So they did that. And Google was born. And Google has uh, been in, in, in a human revolution in information yes. sharing. Yes. I mean, I don't, want to, I don't want to say that Google's bad. What Google does, the ability to look up information indiscriminately, randomly from around the world in a split second and have everything at your fingertips all the time is such a positive addition to human existence that I would never want to exist without it again. I would I would suffer greatly. I remember in the 80s having dinner conversations where we'd have questions like, I have a cough. Would antibiotics get rid of my cough? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't have a book <laughs> on this in the house. I don't know anybody I can call who is a doctor. It's Sunday. Doctors are closed. That's I right. will have to go to bed not knowing that. Whereas now I would... Google that. And I would find out, oh, nine out of 10 coughs seem to be viral. You have to wait for them to go away or take antivirals. But there are 10% of coughs that are bacterial and an antibiotic would work. I'm smarter now. I know something that's useful and valuable. Google gave that to us. Wikipedia gave that to us. But like this centralization, uh, it's it's all based on utility and cost. Um, I'm going to fast forward your intro and the question and skip over maybe some of the mechanics of that and sure. say that the this idea of centralization is a, is manifesting itself now with a different technology that you haven't brought up and I'm just going to 
bring it up because it was in our show notes, which is artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's totally and this right. is this is the most terrifying yes uh, manifestation of centralization that I can think of. So let me, mm. if if you will allow me, maybe you go on. Please go go. So artificial intelligence or machine learning is simply the process of allowing computers to do what computers do very well, which is to recognize patterns in large sets of data in a way that a human could never do. It would literally be impossible for me to look at 10 million data points to come to an opinion about something else, but a computer can do that. So what we're doing is uh, in as a society and as a as technology creators right now in this field of artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning is we're learning how to equip computers with amazingly robust models of learning and apply those to staggeringly large bodies of data so right now uh at this point in our evolution, we've had 30 years of internet and data collection. And there are pretty much oftentimes the same companies that we mentioned, AWS, Google, Apple, Facebook, companies with such large amounts of data, photos, patterns right. of interaction, texts that have been written, uh, all sorts of data, facts about people, all sorts of data, the, you know, the phone records that we have of everybody's cell phone and which tower it's connected to, health data, everything, scientific studies, everything in digital form. And all of these pools of data can be then fed as inputs into learning algorithms that can be used to find patterns in them. And at the fundamental level, this is amazing. This is so cool. We can predict things that we couldn't predict. We can see patterns that we would have missed in the early days of this. These programs were able to print circuits on circuit boards that were more efficient than circuits that humans had discovered. So mm -hmm. they could optimize things in ways that humans hadn't done. They can do work that humans can or can't do uh, an, an artificial intelligence machine learning paralegal might be able to sift through court cases and draw conclusions about potential legal outcomes faster and better than actual paralegals. So at first blush, this is just an amazing advancement for human society, giving us new capabilities that we've never had before. The ability to vet uh, medicines to solve diseases, the ability to predict catastrophes, to, to plan for eventualities that we might not have been able to wrap our own brains around. There, there's so many ways that this can help us. But because these are things that take enormous amounts of computing power to do with enormous amounts of data fed into them, it just so happens that the only organizations on earth that have both mm. enormous amounts of computing power and enormous amounts of data are a few American technology companies and governments. Yes. <laughs> I didn't realize where that was going, but you're correct. So if you are a person who feels that your core values and ethics in life are directly threatened by hyper-powerful multinational American-based companies right. and or 
governments, then you're fucked. (laughs) Well, let me make it even worse, Robert, because another thing is that, as you said, artificial intelligence finds patterns in data. So imagine a police department that has a habit of arresting people of color and, um, you know, less privileged people and, um, and not arresting wealthy criminals and white collar criminals. What kind of database are they going to have? And what is, what is an artificial intelligence program going to do with the data collected by police departments who are inherently racist? They're going to come up with racist conclusions codified into artificial intelligence. Of course and they are. It goes without saying. Yeah. But they use their cell phones to do their work too. They use websites to do their work too. They use Microsoft Excel so think, to do their so work. So you're saying too. it's not, I mean, I, I think what you're saying is that this isn't a change. It's as much as just a, an advancement of, of what's already there. But don't you think that the use of artificial intelligence gives it a certain authority, a presumed authority. Let, let me give you a for instance. One big thing that we, we always talk about at World Beyond War is um, military artificial intelligence. You know, imagine a drone that is looking for terrorists, you know, and it has what, what, it, what it calls terrorists. It has their photographs and it has their information. And this is actually equipped to recognize and kill. You know, that's what that's that's not a futuristic possibility. That's what Amazon and Microsoft are already contracted with the United States federal government to make possible. And um, have, have you heard of Project Jedi? Um, no. Project Maven? No. OK, these are one reason you haven't is, you know, that these are these are the military artificial intelligence programs that both Microsoft and Amazon have um, have each accepted $10 billion contracts with. As you and I both know, being software professionals, $10 billion is a lot of money in the software business. And we did an entire podcast episode about this about a year ago. Um, the, the reason that I use the words Project Jedi and Project Maven is I sort of feel like the United States Defense Department keeps changing the names of these projects to make journalism about it more difficult. Um, and it, there are also several other names, Joint Defense, this and that. Um, but it's scary as hell. It's, you know, many people have seen the, the show Black Mirror, which has robot dogs trained to kill. No, that's our reality now. That that those trained dogs are real, um, it's happening, and I I'm very scared. I'm I'm well more than scared. I'm active. That's why I'm that's why I'm an anti-war activist and also an anti-police activist. Um, I'm I really I don't know where this is heading, and I don't know Robert if you're at the same place as me in terms of this. But I'm glad you brought up artificial intelligence. I was going to bring it up. Um, one thing I wanted to say, and I'm curious if this has emerged in your world, um, when Project Jedi and Project Maven were announced, Google actually, its employees actually insisted that Google um, provide a statement that they will not do military applications of artificial intelligence, and they have actually stood by that. And maybe that's why I have a Gmail address today, um, not, which is not to say that Google is a, not a war profiteer. It is a war profiteer, but they don't do military advanced AI 
scary stuff. <laughs> um, not, not even sure if that's a question to you, Robert, but you know, wondering if, if this is a topic of discussion in your worlds um, as it is in mine. Th- this absolutely, um, I, I absolutely. Uh, but I, I think the main point that I can make here is that it's it's not the technology itself that's evil. Okay, right. You can't say artificial intelligence is evil. Agreed. Because artificial intelligence is likely the only thing that's ever going to cure cancer. And by the way, I, d- I never did say artificial intelligence is evil. I think war is evil. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. and which is why I'm going to come back to my earlier statement that, uh, about blockchain, that I right. think blockchain is going to play a big role in helping humans be do their human stuff and be significant. Artificial intelligence is already massively impactful in humans doing the human thing. And it will absolutely grow and blossom in ways that we can't yet imagine. And my huge red flag is that it's a technology that's even more prone to centralization than all others due to the training costs and the data sets. The data sets that feed these algorithms are oftentimes not public. They're proprietary. It's data that's collected point. by point. the all of the snoopware and the privacy violations that these same companies are, are, are leveling against us as internet citizens on a daily basis. So uh, all, of, all of the large data sets that have been collected about our internet behavior can all then be weaponized in a way yeah. by feeding them into these algorithms to, to manipulate us uh, and to, to do things that we might not want to do because they can accurately predict how we'll respond to certain stimuli. Um, and I, I find that not very nice and rather scary. Um, and, and it's the matter of centralization that I find the most problematic because with, with other technologies, I mentioned Excel, for example. Let's mm-hmm. just generalize that to spreadsheets. Let's say LibreOffice spreadsheets, which are pretty much just as good. I can get myself LibreOffice spreadsheets and have the same type of capabilities as somebody uh, who has Microsoft Excel spreadsheets too, right? There's, there's not a centralization around that necessarily, but there's no way that I, as Robert Douglas, a natural uh, person can go out and in my lifetime, create a data set like Google has just done that draws uh, cartoon scenes out of the, the, uh, out of the, a suggestion phrase. Like you could say, draw me the Easter bunny holding a hot dog and it will it will create amazing yeah. artworks uh many of them of easter bunnies holding hot dogs that look like they were coming from coming from the human imagination it's so impressive there's no way that i can ever compete with that as a natural person because i don't have all of the data and i don't have access to all of the compute power to do that ever yes, yes. and google at some point, or Microsoft, or Amazon, or whoever else, then is a, a gatekeeper to who in human society gets to benefit from this amazingly yes. potentially beneficial in, invention. 
And if they choose dictators and warlords and warmongers and the CIA and the NSA and the, the, the Navy and the Army and the Air Force to be the beneficiaries of, of, of those technologies, then we're going to have even more effectively lethal, deadly wars. Yes. That's just the, well, the end result. Yeah. Yeah, very well said, Robert. I'm I'm glad I asked you. You know, you are pointing out an aspect of concern about AI that I had not focused on, and you're absolutely right. Um, the scale of the data collection and data ownership is a question I haven't even really thought about. Wow. Well, we this is a this is a lot i'm i'm and i also want to thank our listeners who are who are bearing this is certainly the most um technologically difficult episode we've ever done i want to bring up one last topic related um and i was sort of thinking in this direction when i said 20 years ago we all ran our own web servers or paid 20 dollars a year or or 10 bucks a month, whatever, to host our websites. And now the hosting of website is in the hands of tech giants. Doesn't it seem like culturally we let that happen without making a, we meaning the software developer community that, you know, that the techies of the world, we sort of let that happen without noticing it, which is not to say that you didn't notice it or I didn't notice it. And now I want to ask about the open source the, the health of the world open source community. And I want to say something about the open source community. It's been one of the most wonderful, magical, unbelievably great things that I've witnessed in my life um, is that software developers since, you know, before I was born have taken it upon themselves to work cooperatively, generously, without greed without even concepts of ownership to create the, you know, some of the original open source communities were the Unix operating system, the, the, the C programming language, which became C++. Then we had Linux or Linux, depending on which you like to call it. Um, then we had the web. Um, then we had things like Drupal and WordPress. And Robert, I met you, you know, I, I'm not sure if you, I'm, I, you probably don't remember as vividly as I do, because I was a Drupal newbie when I met you. And you were, as I said before, a Drupal superstar. Thank you for allowing me to call you that without embarrassment. And I was absolutely enchanted by the Drupal community, which again, was so cooperative, so unselfish, so ungreedy. The, the best Drupal programmers in the world were not proud of how much money they made. They were proud of how much they gave to the community and how much they mentored younger developers. Just the most wonderful community. And that's why I was on stage with you in Austin, Texas, you know, dancing around on stage. I was dancing with joy to be part of this community. That's the happy part. Now the sad part. I don't really know where Drupal is in 2022. They seem to have gone much more towards large enterprise and government. World Beyond War probably would have been running on Drupal if we existed 10 years ago, but we run on WordPress now. It seems to me that open source communities have adopted more payment schemes. And I actually remember, Robert, that is something that you have championed in the past, you know, modest payment schemes for um, software contributions to projects like Drupal and WordPress. But it seems there's been a loss of that spirit, you know, sort of that, you know, 
hippie spirit of of generosity. There was it, open source was like Woodstock, and now it seems a little more like Wall Street to me. Am I right or wrong? Where are you on this? Oh, it's a great observation and question, and you're neither right nor wrong. Um, <laughs> you're just not looking in the right places. Uh, so, to the funding of open source, I you're right that from very early days. Uh, 15, 17 years ago, I was one of the people who were saying, really pay attention to where the funding is coming from and guarantee that it's there because none of this is actually happening simply just out of altruism. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's not some magic thing going on where all of a sudden people just work for free. It's not like that. And we have to really deeply understand why people contribute to open source uh, and why open source is beneficial and, and nurture and foster the environments in which the people who want to work on that software actually get the funding they need. If we don't pay attention to those mechanisms at a deep, deep level, then we'll lose what we have. And that was my, my message all along. And uh, I think what you've observed in the Drupal space is that Drupal is simply not the most exciting technology around. It's a mature technology that people really understand, and it's it's not doing anything groundbreaking anymore. It's getting better and better. And a lot mm-hmm. of the ethos in Drupal that you mentioned is still there. Uh, so it, it's not like it's a failed open source project by any means. No, it's no. Still, and I wouldn't growing so. in importance and the community is still very strong and still has a lot of those values that you mentioned that you really like. But if you want to see uh, where really exciting stuff with open source is happening, I invite you to look to the decentralized arena of open source development. So one of the things that I only briefly touched on when talking about blockchains is that they're usually all open source programs, which means that all of the underlying protocol level programming that they entail and any innovations that are going on there are also open source uh, projects. Now, I'm going to say a bunch of things right now that you can look up later and I can put them in the show notes, but these are the things that interest me right now uh, in terms of uh, decentralization and what's going on at protocol levels. And these are open source movements, each one of them. So one of them is... uh, the interplanetary file system and its underlying uh, building block, which is called interplanetary linked data. And these are two things that the Laconic network that I work with uh, uses in its technology. Cool. And these are way, these are ways to link data globally in a peer-to-peer decentralized way. Uh, and in terms of the interplanetary file system to make files and data available to anybody without censorship, without centralization, uh, opening up the potential for infinite storage of the world's data with no central gatekeepers. Uh, And I think that's really fascinating. There's a concept in there called content addressability where Hmm. Um, if, if, if you think about the way the internet works right now, it's like it, it, the lookup system is a little bit like go to the library, go to the third floor, go to the fifth row, fourth shelf in, top shelf, second book from the right. And that's what you should read. It's a great book. I highly wow. recommend it. So you go to the library, you go up to the third floor, you go down to the fifth aisle and up to the third shelf, et cetera. 
and it's like, oh, wait, I read that one or it's in my backpack or whatsoever. Whereas I could have just told you, read, you know, uh, <laughs> War right. of the Worlds and you would have gotten that book. Um, anti-war podcast. I don't know why that came to mind. <laughs> well chosen. So, uh, so, so IPFS or Interplanetary File System Champions Content Addressability. Wow. Means if I give you an identifier for content, let's say it's the, the book that I wrote on Drupal, all you have to do is ask the system for that identifier and you get that content and you know that it's that content. 100% guaranteed. There's no way it can be spoofed or faked. Amazing. Uh, another thing that is just absolutely fascinating uh, is something called zero knowledge proofs, uh, and and this comes actually out of the need for privacy. So, some activists and some criminals, because humans are going to be humans, want to do things where they want to hide their identity, both their identity and the person they're transacting with. And they also want to hide the messages and whatever they're transacting. So let's say I want to send you a message, an email, or let's say I want to send you some money. And I don't want there to be any record of who I am, who you are, or what we transacted. There are ways to do this these days called zero-knowledge proofs that hmm. are nothing short of magical hmm. in terms of how they work from a technology point of view. And they're being developed as open source software by open source communities out in the open for anybody's benefit, whether they're ben benign or nefarious. And uh, the technology and the open source ethos around that is just spectacular. I'm definitely going to look all that stuff up. I like the term interplanetary. That's that's my kind of thing. And I like it, Robert, that you managed to turn my sort of gloomy observations about open source, you know, culture into an optimistic um, direction. Because I do think you 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 are showing signs of optimism, and that's a good quality to have. Maybe it is. I used to be so <laughs> optimistic that I would say that my glass is half overflowing. Uh, there was a self-referential observation about my optimism. I would say that with age, um, that optim <clears throat> that optimism has has been um, annealed and tempered and modified, and I'm I'm very concerned about the state of the world. Yeah, yeah, and that brings us back to where we started here. I've never done a podcast episode that has so thoroughly limbed the boundary between possible good and possible bad, you know, as when we talk about advanced technologies, whether, you know, and again, you know, not, not just our listeners, but me are turned off by the, the greediness that we see around the Bitcoin community. And at the same time, I believe that blockchain peer to peer decentralized technology may very well be a be a path to the future and it ain't going away whether i like it or not so i i hope that our faithful listeners and i know a lot of people listen to every episode of this podcast i hope this doesn't become the the one that that maxes out their brain power because we have talked about a lot of difficult stuff here um but you know i well, want if i could you, if but, i could yeah, tack yeah. on to that mark sure. Those people, it's not about brain power. It's simply about how excited or disgusted you get when you see a behavior that you disagree with or you feel is not beneficial. And the um, I can also confirm, even though I'm a, at this point would call myself somebody who is 
bullish and uh, a proponent for developing blockchain technologies. I can also confirm firsthand after coming from a recent conference uh, in Amsterdam that this greed is a very motivating factor for uh, a lot, if not most of the people in the space. And Mm -hmm. there's a whole other topic about whether that's an inherently good and inherently bad thing or just human nature. I want to thank you, Robert. This is we we've really gone around the block a few times here, um, and um, the, this is the world we live in—a world of fast technological change—and we're trying to make it a little bit better. I also just want to say, Robert, you know, the reason I asked you of a few software developers is, you know, your love of music and art and creativity shows me your human side, and I really appreciate it when somebody puts forth both of their sides in life. I try to do the same. So I think you're a kindred spirit in that way, Robert. So thank thank you, Mark. (laughs) It goes both ways. Thanks a lot. Um, I hope we'll do this again. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll make this a regular thing, you know, tech activism talk once a year or something. So thanks a lot, Robert. Good luck to you and um, your continent and your, you know, the country you're in right now, hard, hard and scary times. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Take care. for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.